Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast, subpar readings of extremely niche fiction. My name is Tycho Alhambra, and according to at least one television celebrity, I'm trash trying desperately to stay relevant with a pathetic podcast. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you. There are links in the show notes to some institutions fighting for reproductive justice. Please donate to their cause. Transcripts of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. This is the final episode of Dream Quest and the final episode before the Pride Month project begins. Throughout June, I'm going to step away from the microphone and let members of the LGBTQ plus community have the spotlight. They'll be presenting a long-form story throughout the month with segments appearing on Saturdays and Sundays. That's right, eight episodes. Double the pleasure, double the fun. Tangential story. While double-checking to make sure those were the correct words to the double mint gum ads from my childhood, I watched five different gum commercials. One of them was for Big Red, which tragically doesn't exist anymore, and four of them were for double mint. Of those four, three of them were exactly the same commercial. Two twin women in green approach a street vendor and get creepily scoped out by two blonde douchebag-looking idiots. The women sit down to enjoy their food when OG's Ogato knows some sort of extremely minor mishap happens, and the two blonde douchebags come to the rescue, for which the women are grateful and go out with them because... reasons? It was a surprise that it was literally the exact same commercial with three different casts, but all telling the same story, and what are we even doing here? Big Red had the best commercial song. I don't care what anyone says. At least until the Coca-Cola stock up on Joy commercial, which is kind of a bop and has Kristen Milioti in it, who is a close second to Anne Hathaway in People I Would Meet and Spend Social Time With. Links to the commercials in the show notes. Okay, where was I? Pride Month. So the Karnacki story that should be premiering at the start of June will be at the start of July, followed immediately by the next entry in the Randolph Carter Chronicles, and then we're back on track. Last thing. I really had one goal for my show this year, and that's to make it to the next 100,000 download plateau before the end of June. That would mean I got 100,000 downloads in six months, which would just be amazing for me. I'm about 90% sure I'm going to make it, and that is just astounding to me. Five years ago, me, recording in his kitchen with no soundproofing, no pop blocker, no post-processing, and trying desperately to keep his cat silent, would not believe it if I were to go back in time and tell him. But here we are, and that very first episode he recorded, The Music of Eric Zahn, is still one of the top ten most played episodes. Okay, this intro has gotten incredibly, profanely, obscenely out of hand, so let's make like a responsible bartender, cut it off, and get to the show. Presently, a burst of excitement on the galley told of the crew's discovery of the changed state of things, and the instant stoppage of the vessel proved that the superior numbers of the ghouls had been noted and taken into account. After a moment of hesitation, the newcomers silently turned and passed out between the headlands again, but not for an instant did the ghouls imagine that the conflict was averted. Either the dark ship would seek reinforcements, or the crew would try to land elsewhere on the island. Hence, a party of scouts was at once set up toward the pinnacle to see what the enemy's course would be. In a very few minutes, a ghoul returned, breathless, to say that the moon beasts and almost humans were landing on the outside of the more easterly of the rugged gray headlands and ascending by hidden paths and ledges which a goat could scarcely tread in safety. Almost immediately afterward, the galley was sighted again through the flume-like strait, but only for a second— Then a few moments later, a second messenger panted down from aloft to say that another party was landing on the other headland, both being much more numerous than the size of the galley would seem to allow for. The ship itself, moving slowly with only one sparsely manned tier of oars, soon hove in sight betwixt the cliffs and lay to in the fetid harbor as if to watch the coming fray and stand by for any possible use. By this time, Carter and Pickman had divided the ghouls into three parties, one to meet each of the two invading columns, and one to remain in the town. The first two at once scrambled up the rocks in their respective directions, while the third was subdivided into a land party and a sea party. The sea party, commanded by Carter, boarded the anchored galley and rode out to meet the undermanned galley of the newcomers, whereat the latter retreated through the strait to the open sea. Carter did not at once pursue it, for he knew he might be needed more acutely near the town. 
Meanwhile, the frightful detachments of the moon beasts and almost humans had lumbered up to the top of the headlands and were shockingly silhouetted on either side against the gray twilight sky. The thin, hellish flutes of the invaders had now begun to whine, and the general effect of those hybrid, half-amorphous processions was as nauseating as the actual odor given off by the toad-like lunar blasphemies. Then the two parties of the ghouls swarmed into sight and joined the silhouetted panorama. Javelins began to fly from both sides, and the swelling meeps of the ghouls and the bestial howls of the almost humans gradually joined the hellish whine of the flutes to form a frantic and indescribable chaos of demon cacophony. Now and then bodies fell from the narrow ridges of the headlands into the sea outside or the harbor inside, in the latter case being sucked quickly under by certain submarine lurkers whose presence was indicated only by prodigious bubbles. For half an hour this dual battle raged in the sky, till upon the west cliff the invaders were completely annihilated. On the east cliff, however, where the leader of the Moon Beast party appeared to be present, the ghouls had not fared so well, and were slowly retreating to the slopes of the pinnacle proper. Pickman had quickly ordered reinforcements for this front from the party in the town, and these had helped greatly in the earlier stages of the combat. Then, when the western battle was over, the victorious survivors hastened across to the aid of their hard-pressed fellows, turning the tide and forcing the invaders back again along the narrow ridge of the headland. The almost humans were by this time all slain, but the last of the toad-like horrors fought desperately with the great spears clutched in their powerful and disgusting paws. The time for javelins was now nearly past, and the fight became a hand-to-hand contest of what few spearmen could meet upon that narrow ridge. As fury and recklessness increased, the number falling into the sea became very great. Those striking the harbor met nameless extinction from the unseen bubblers, but of those striking the open sea, some were able to swim to the foot of the cliffs and land on tidal rocks, while the hovering galley of the enemy rescued several moon beasts. The cliffs were unscalable, except where the monsters had debarked, so that none of the ghouls on the rocks could rejoin their battle line. Some were killed by javelins from the hostile galley or from the moon beasts above, but a few survived to be rescued. When the security of the land party seemed assured, Carter's galley sailed forth between the headlands and drove the hostile ship far out to sea, pausing to rescue such ghouls as were on the rocks or still swimming in the ocean. Several moon beasts washed on rocks or reefs were speedily put out of the way. Finally, the moon beast's galley, being safely in the distance, and the invading land army concentrated in one place, Carter landed a considerable force on the eastern headland in the enemy's rear, after which the fight was short-lived indeed. Attacked from both sides, the noisome flounderers were rapidly cut to pieces or pushed into the sea, till by evening the ghoulish chiefs agreed that the island was again clear of them. The hostile galley, meanwhile, had disappeared, and it was decided that the evil jagged rock had better be evacuated before any overwhelming horde of lunar horrors might be assembled and brought against the victors. So by night, Pickman and Carter assembled all the ghouls and counted them with care, finding that over a fourth had been lost in the day's battles. The wounded were placed on bunks in the galley, for Pickman always discouraged the old ghoulish custom of killing and eating one's own wounded, and the able-bodied troops were assigned to the oars or to such other places as they might most usefully fill. Under the low phosphorescent clouds of night the galley sailed, and Carter was not sorry to be departing from that island of unwholesome secrets, whose lightless domed hall with its bottomless well and repellent bronze door lingered restlessly in his fancy. Dawn found the ship inside of Sarcoman's ruined keys of basalt, where a few night-gaunt sentries still waited, squatting like black-horned gargoyles on the broken columns and crumbling sphinxes of that fearful city which lived and died before the years of man. The ghouls made camp amongst the fallen stones of Sarcomand, dispatching a messenger for enough night-gaunts to serve them as steeds. Pickman and the other chiefs were effusive in their gratitude for the aid Carter had lent them, and Carter now began to feel that his plans were indeed maturing well, and that he would be able to command the help of these fearsome allies not only in quitting this part of Dreamland, but in pursuing his ultimate quest for the gods atop unknown Kadath and the marvelous sunset city they so strangely withheld from his slumbers. Accordingly, he spoke of these things to the ghoulish leaders, telling what he knew of the cold waste wherein Kadath stands, and of the monstrous Shantaks and the mountains carven into double-headed images which guard it. 
He spoke of the fear of Shantax for night gaunts, and of how the vast hippocephalic birds fly screaming from the black burrows high up on the gaunt gray peaks that divide Inganic from hateful Lang. He spoke, too, of the things he had learnt concerning night gaunts from the frescoes in the windowless monastery of the high priest not to be described, how even the great ones fear them, and how their ruler is not the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep at all, but hoary and immemorial Nodens, lord of the great abyss. All these things Carter glibbered to the assembled ghouls, and presently outlined that request which he had in mind and which he did not think extravagant, considering the services he had so lately rendered the rubbery, dog-like lopers. He wished very much, he said, for the services of enough night gaunts to bear him safely through the air, past the realm of Shantax and Carven Mountains, and up into the cold waste beyond the returning tracks of any other mortal. He desired to fly to the Onyx Castle atop unknown Kadath in the cold waste to plead with the Great Ones for the Sunset City they denied him, and felt sure that the Night Gaunts could take him thither without trouble, high above the perils of the plain and over the hideous double heads of those carven sentinel mountains that squat eternally in the gray dusk. For the horned and faceless creatures, there could be no danger from aught of earth, since the Great Ones themselves dread them and even were unexpected things to come from the other gods who are prone to oversee the affairs of Earth's milder gods, the night gaunts need not fear, for the outer hells are indifferent matters to such silent and slippery flyers as own not Nyarlathotep for their master, but bow only to potent and archaic Nodens. A flock of ten or fifteen night gaunts, Carter glibbered, would surely be enough to keep any combination of Shantax at a distance, though perhaps it might be well to have some ghouls in the party to manage the creatures, their ways being better known to their ghoulish allies than to men. The party could land him at some convenient point within whatever walls that fabulous Onyx citadel might have, waiting in the shadows for his return or his signal whilst he ventured inside the castle to give prayer to the gods of Earth. If any ghouls chose to escort him into the throne room of the Great Ones, he would be thankful, for their presence would add weight and importance to his plea. He would not, however, insist upon this, but merely wish transportation to and from the castle atop unknown Kadath, the final journey being either to the marvelous sunset city itself, in case the gods proved favorable, or back to the eastward gate of deeper slumber in the enchanted wood in case his prayers were fruitless. Whilst Carter was speaking, all the ghouls listened with great attention, and as the moments advanced, the sky became black with clouds of those night gaunts for which messengers had been sent. The winged horrors settled in a semicircle around the ghoulish army, waiting respectfully as the dog-like chieftains considered the wish of the earthly traveler. The ghoul that was Pikmin glivered gravely with its fellows, and in the end Carter was offered far more than he had at most expected. As he had aided the ghouls in their conquest of the moon beasts, so would they aid him in his daring voyage to realms whence none had ever returned." Lending him not merely a few of their allied night gaunts, but their entire army as they encamped, veteran fighting ghouls and newly assembled night gaunts alike, save only a small garrison for the captured black galley and such spoils as had come from the jagged rock in the sea. They would set out through the air whenever he might wish, and once arrived on Kadath, a suitable train of ghouls would attend him in state as he placed his petition before Earth's gods in their onyx castle. Moved by a gratitude and satisfaction beyond words, Carter made plans with the ghoulish leaders for his audacious voyage. The army would fly high, they decided, over hideous Leng, with its nameless monastery and wicked stone villages, stopping only at the vast gray peaks to confer with the Shantak-frightening night gaunts whose burrows honeycombed their summits. They would then, according to what advice they might receive from those denizens, choose their final course, approaching unknown Kadath either through the desert of Carven Mountains north of Inganic, or through the more northerly reaches of repulsive Lang itself. Dog-like and soulless as they are, the ghouls and night gaunts had no dread of what those untrodden deserts might reveal, nor did they feel any deterring awe at the thought of Kadath towering lone with its onyx castle of mystery. About midday, the ghouls and night gaunts prepared for flight, each ghoul selecting a suitable pair of horned steeds to bear him. Carter was placed well up toward the head of the column beside Pikmin, and in front of the hull a double line of riderless night gaunts was provided as a vanguard. 
at a brisk meep from Pikmin, the whole shocking army rose in a nightmare cloud above the broken columns and crumbling sphinxes of primordial Sarkamond, higher and higher, till even the great basalt cliff behind the town was cleared and the cold, sterile tableland of Lang's outskirts laid open to sight. Still higher flew the black host, till even this tableland grew small beneath them, and as they worked northward over the windswept plateau of horror, Carter saw once again with a shudder the circle of crude monoliths and the squat, windowless building which he knew held that frightful silken-masked blasphemies from whose clutches he had so narrowly escaped. This time no descent was made as the army swept bat-like over the sterile landscape, passing the feeble fires of the unwholesome stone villages at a great altitude, and pausing not at all to mark the morbid twistings of the hooved, horned, almost humans that dance and pipe eternally therein. Once they saw a shantak bird flying low over the plain, but when it saw them it screamed noxiously and flapped off to the north in grotesque panic. At dusk they reached the jagged gray peaks that formed the barrier of Inganic and hovered about those strange caves near the summits which Carter recalled as so frightful to the Shantaks. At the insistent meeping of the ghoulish leaders, there issued forth from each lofty burrow a stream of horned black flyers with which the ghouls and night-gaunts of the party conferred at length by means of ugly gestures. It soon became clear that the best course would be that over the cold wastes north of Inganic, for Lang's northward reaches are full of unseen pitfalls that even the night-gaunts dislike, abysmal influences centering in certain white hemispherical buildings on curious knolls, which common folklore associates unpleasantly with the other gods and their crawling chaos, Nyarlat Hotep. Of Kadath, the flutterers of the peaks knew almost nothing, save that there must be some mighty marvel toward the north, over which the Shantaks and the Carven Mountains stand guard. They hinted at rumored abnormalities of proportion in those trackless leagues beyond, and recalled vague whispers of a realm where night broods eternally. But of definite data they had nothing to give. So Carter and his party thanked them kindly, and crossing the topmost granite pinnacles to the skies of Inganic, dropped below the level of the phosphorescent night clouds, and beheld in the distance those terrible squatting gargoyles that were mountains till some titan hand carved fright into their virgin rock. There they squatted, in a hellish half-circle, their legs on the desert sand and their miters piercing the luminous clouds, sinister, wolf-like, and double-headed, with faces of fury and right hands raised, dully and malignly watching the rim of man's world and guarding with horror the reaches of a cold northern world that is not man's. From their hideous laps rose evil shantaks of elephantine bulk, but these all fled with insane titters as the vanguard of night-gaunts was sighted in the misty sky. Northward above those gargoyle mountains the army flew, and over leagues of dim desert where never a landmark rose. Less and less luminous grew the clouds, till at length Carter could see only blackness around him. But never did the winged steeds falter, bred as they were in earth's blackest crypts and seeing not with any eyes, but with the whole dank surface of their slippery forms. On and on they flew, past winds of dubious scent and sounds of dubious import, ever in thickest darkness and covering such prodigious spaces that Carter wondered whether or not they could still be within Earth's dreamland. Then suddenly the clouds thinned and the stars shone spectrally above. All below was still black, but those pallid beacons in the sky seemed alive with a meaning and directiveness they had never possessed elsewhere. It was not that the figures of the constellations were different, but that the same familiar shapes now revealed a significance they had formerly failed to make plain. Everything focused towards the north. Every curve and asterism of the glittering sky became part of a vast design whose function was to hurry first the eye, and then the whole observer onward to some secret and terrible goal of convergence beyond the frozen wastes that stretched endlessly ahead. Carter looked toward the east where the great ridge of barrier peaks had towered along all the length of Inganic, and saw against the stars a jagged silhouette which told of its continued presence. It was more broken now, with yawning clefts and fantastically erratic pinnacles, and Carter studied closely the suggestive turns and inclinations of that grotesque outline, which seemed to share with the stars some subtle northward urge. They were flying past at a tremendous speed, 
so that the watcher had to strain hard to catch details, when all at once he beheld just above the line of the topmost peaks a dark and moving object against the stars, whose course exactly paralleled that of his own bizarre party. The ghouls had likewise glimpsed it, for he heard their low glibbering all about him, and for a moment he fancied the object was a gigantic shantack, of a size vastly greater than that of the average specimen. Soon, however, he saw that this theory would not hold, for the shape of the thing above the mountains was not that of any hippocephalic bird. Its outline against the stars, necessarily vague as it was, resembled rather some huge mitered head or pair of heads infinitely magnified, and its rapid bobbing flight through the sky seemed most peculiarly a wingless one. Carter could not tell which side of the mountains it was on, but soon perceived that it had parts below the parts he had first seen, since it blotted out all the stars in places where the ridge was deeply cleft. Then came a wide gap in the range where the hideous reaches of Transmontan Lang were joined to the cold waste on this side by a low pass through which the stars shone wanly. Carter watched this gap with intense care, knowing that he might see outlined against the sky beyond it the lower parts of the vast thing that flew undulantly above the pinnacles. The object had now floated ahead a trifle, and every eye of the party was fixed on the rift where it would presently appear in full-length silhouette. Gradually, the huge thing above the peaks neared the gap, slightly slackening its speed as if conscious of having outdistanced the ghoulish army. For another minute, suspense was keen, and then the brief instant of full silhouette and revelation came, bringing to the lips of the ghouls an odd and half-choked meep of cosmic fear, and to the soul of the traveler, a chill that has never wholly left it. For the mammoth, bobbing shape that overtopped the ridge was only a head, a mitered double head, and below it, in terrible vastness, loped the frightful swollen body that bore it, the mountain-high monstrosity that walked in stealth and silence, the hyena-like distortion of a giant anthropoid shape that trotted blackly against the sky, its repulsive pair of cone-capped heads reaching halfway to the zenith. Carter did not lose consciousness or even scream aloud, for he was an old dreamer, but he looked behind him in horror and shuddered when he saw that there were other monstrous heads silhouetted above the level of the peaks, bobbing along stealthily after the first one, and straight in the rear were three of the mighty mountain shapes seen full against the southern stars, tiptoeing wolf-like and lumberingly, their tall miters nodding thousands of feet in the air. The carven mountains, then, had not stayed squatting in that rigid semicircle north of Inganic with right hands uplifted. They had duties to perform and were not remiss. But it was horrible that they never spoke and never even made a sound in walking. Meanwhile, the ghoul that was Pikmin had glibbered in order to the night gaunts and the whole army soared higher into the air. Up toward the stars the grotesque column shot till nothing stood out any longer against the sky, neither the gray granite ridge that was still, nor the carven and mitered mountains that walked. All was blackness beneath as the fluttering legion surged northward amidst rushing winds and invisible laughter in the aether, and never a shantack or less mentionable entity rose from the haunted wastes to pursue them. The farther they went, the faster they flew, till soon their dizzying speed seemed to pass that of a rifle ball and approach that of a planet in its orbit. Carter wondered how, with such speed, the earth could still stretch beneath them, but knew that in the land of dream dimensions have strange properties. That they were in a realm of eternal night, he felt certain, and he fancied that the constellations overhead had subtly emphasized their northward focus, gathering themselves up, as it were, to cast the flying army into the void of the boreal pole, as the folds of a bag are gathered up to cast out the last bits of substance therein. Then he noticed with terror that the wings of the night gaunts were not flapping any more. The horned and faceless steeds had folded their membranous appendages and were resting quite passive in the chaos of wind that whirled and chuckled as it bore them on. A force not of earth had seized on the army, and ghouls and night gaunts alike were powerless before a current, which pulled madly and relentlessly into the north whence no mortal had ever returned. At length, a lone pallid light was seen on the skyline ahead, thereafter rising steadily as they approached, and having beneath it a black mass that blotted out the stars. 
Carter saw that it must be some beacon on a mountain, for only a mountain could rise so vast as seen from so prodigious a height in the air. Higher and higher rose the light and the blackness beneath it, till half the northern sky was obscured by the rugged conical mass. Lofty as the army was, that pale and sinister beacon rose above it, towering monstrous over all peaks and concernments of earth, and tasting the atomless aether where the cryptical moon and the mad planets reel. No mountain note of man was that which loomed before them. The high clouds far below were but a fringe for its foothills. The gasping dizziness of topmost air was but a girdle for its loins. Scornful and spectral climbed that bridge betwixt earth and heaven, black in eternal night, and crowned with a shent of unknown stars whose awful and significant outline grew every moment clearer. Ghouls meeped in wonder as they saw it, and Carter shivered in fear lest all the hurtling army be dashed to pieces on the unyielding onyx of that cyclopean cliff. Higher and higher rose the light, till it mingled with the loftiest orbs of the zenith, and winked down at the flyers with lurid mockery. All the north beneath it was blackness now, dread stony blackness from infinite depths to infinite heights, with only that pale, winking beacon perched unreachably at the top of all vision. Carter studied the light more closely, and saw at last what lines its inky background made against the stars. There were towers on that titan mountaintop, horrible domed towers and noxious and incalculable tiers and clusters beyond any dreamable workmanship of man. Battlements and terraces of wonder and menace all limbed tiny and black and distant against the starry shunt that glowed malevolently at the uppermost rim of sight. Capping that most measureless of mountains was a castle beyond all mortal thought, and in it glowed the demon light. Then Randolph Carter knew that his quest was done, and that he saw above him the goal of all forbidden steps and audacious visions, the fabulous, the incredible home of the Great Ones, atop unknown Kadath. Even as he realized this thing, Carter noticed a change in the course of the helplessly wind-sucked party. They were rising abruptly now, and it was plain that the focus of their flight was the onyx castle where the pale light shone. So close was the great black mountain that its sides sped by them dizzily as they shot upward, and in the darkness they could discern nothing about it. Vaster and vaster loomed the tenebrous towers of the knighted castle above, and Carter could see that it was well-nigh blasphemous in its immensity. Well might its stones have been quarried by nameless workmen in that horrible gulf rent out of the rock in the hill pass north of Inganic, for such was its size that a man on its threshold stood even as an ant on the step of earth's loftiest fortress. The shent of unknown stars above the myriad-domed turrets glowed with a sallow, sickly flare, so that a kind of twilight hung about the murky walls of slippery onyx. The pallid beacon was now seen to be a single shining window high up in one of the loftiest towers, and as the helpless army neared the top of the mountain, Carter thought he detected unpleasant shadows flitting across the feebly luminous expanse. It was a strangely arched window, of a design wholly alien to earth. The solid rock now gave place to the giant foundations of the monstrous castle, and it seemed that the speed of the party was somewhat abated. Vast walls shot up, and there was a glimpse of a great gate through which the voyagers were swept. All was night in the Titan courtyard, and then came the deeper blackness of inmost things as a huge arched portal engulfed the column. Vortices of cold wind surged dankly through sightless labyrinths of onyx, and Carter could never tell what cyclopean stairs and corridors lay silent along the route of his endless aerial twisting. Always upward led the terrible plunge in darkness, and never a sound, touch, or glimpse broke the dense pall of mystery. Large as the army of ghouls and nightgaunts was, it was lost in the prodigious voids of that more than earthly castle. And when at last there suddenly dawned around him the lurid light of that single tower room whose lofty windows had served as a beacon, it took Carter long to discern the far walls and high distant ceiling, and to realize that he was, indeed, not again in the boundless air outside. Randolph Carter had hoped to come into the throne room of the Great Ones with poise and dignity, flanked and followed by impressive lines of ghouls in ceremonial order, and offering his prayer as a free and potent master among dreamers. 
he had known that the Great Ones themselves are not beyond a mortal's power to cope with, and had trusted to luck that the other gods and their crawling chaos Nyarlat Hotep would not happen to come to their aid at the crucial moment, as they had so often done before when men sought out Earth's gods in their home or on their mountains. And with his hideous escort, he had half hoped to defy even the other gods, if need were, knowing as he did that ghouls have no masters, and that Night Gaunts own not Nyarlat Hotep, but only archaic Nodens for their lord. But now he saw that Supernal Kadath in its cold waste is indeed girt with dark wonders and nameless sentinels, and that the other gods are of a surety vigilant in guarding the mild, feeble gods of Earth. Void as they are of lordship over ghouls and night gaunts, the mindless, shapeless blasphemies of outer space can yet control them when they must, so that it was not in state as a free and potent master of dreamers that Randolph Carter came into the Great One's throne room with his ghouls. Swept and herded by nightmare tempests from the stars and dogged by unseen horrors of the northern waste, all that army floated captive and helpless in the lurid light, dropping numbly to the onyx floor, when by some voiceless order the winds of fright dissolved. Before no golden dais had Randolph Carter come, nor was there any august circle of crowned and haloed beings with narrow eyes, long-lobed ears, thin nose, and pointed chin, whose kinship to the carven face on Ingranic might stamp them as those to whom a dreamer might pray. Save for that one tower room, the onyx castle atop Kadath was dark, and the masters were not there. Carter had come to unknown Kadath in the cold waste, but he had not found the gods. Yet still the lurid light glowed in that one tower room whose size was so little less than that of all outdoors, and whose distant walls and roof were so nearly lost to sight in thin curling mists. Earth's gods were not there, it was true, but of subtler and less visible presences there could be no lack. Where the mild gods are absent, the other gods are not unrepresented, and certainly the onyx castle of castles was far from tenantless. In what outraged form or forms terror would next reveal itself, Carter could by no means imagine. He felt that his visit had been expected, and wondered how close a watch had all along been kept upon him by the crawling chaos Nyarlat Hotep. It is Nyarlat Hotep, horror of infinite shapes and dread soul and messenger of the other gods, that the fungus moon beasts serve, and Carter thought of the black galley that had vanished when the tide of battle turned against the toad-like abnormalities on the jagged rock in the sea. Reflecting upon these things, he was staggering to his feet in the midst of his nightmare company when there rang without warning through that pale litten and limitless chamber the hideous blast of a demon trumpet. Three times pealed that frightful brazen scream, and when the echoes of the third blast had died chucklingly away, Randolph Carter saw that he was alone. Whither, why, and how the ghouls and night gaunts had been snatched from sight was not for him to divine. He knew only that he was suddenly alone, and that whatever unseen powers lurked mockingly around him were no powers of Earth's friendly dreamland. Presently, from the chamber's uttermost reaches, a new sound came. This, too, was a rhythmic trumpeting, but of a kind far removed from the three raucous blasts which had dissolved his grisly cohorts. In this low fanfare echoed all the wonder and melody of ethereal dream, exotic vistas of unimagined loveliness floating from each strange chord and subtly alien cadence. Odors of incense came to match the golden notes, and overhead a great light dawned, its colors changing in cycles unknown to Earth's spectrum and following the song of the trumpet in weird symphonic harmonies. Torches flared in the distance, and the beat of drums throbbed nearer amidst waves of tense expectancy. Out of the thinning mists and the cloud of strange incense filed twin columns of gigantic black slaves with loincloths of iridescent silk. Upon their heads were strapped vast, helmet-like torches of glittering metal from which the fragrance of obscure balsams spread in fumous spirals. In their right hands were crystal wands whose tips were carven into leering chimeras, while their left hands grasped long, thin silver trumpets which they blew in turn. 
armlets and anklets of gold they had, and between each pair of anklets stretched a golden chain that held its wearer to a sober gait. That they were true black men of Earth's dreamland was at once apparent, but it seemed less likely that their rites and costumes were wholly things of our Earth. Ten feet from Carter, the column stopped, and as they did so, each trumpet flew abruptly to its bearer's thick lips. Wild and ecstatic was the blast that followed, and wilder still the cry that chorused just after from dark throats, somehow made shrill by strange artifice. Then, down the wide lane betwixt the two columns, a lone figure strode. A tall, slim figure with the young face of an antique pharaoh, gay with prismatic robes and crowned with a golden shent that glowed with inherent light. Close up to Carter strode that regal figure, whose proud carriage and swart features had in them the fascination of a dark god or fallen archangel, and around whose eyes there lurked the languid sparkle of capricious humor. It spoke, and in its mellow tones there rippled the mild music of Lethean streams. Randolph Carter, said the voice, you have come to see the great ones whom it is unlawful for men to see. Watchers have spoken of this thing, and the other gods have grunted as they rolled and tumbled mindlessly to the sound of thin flutes in the black ultimate void, where broods the demon sultan, whose name no lips dare speak aloud. When Barzai the wise climbed Hatheg Claw to see the great ones dance and howl above the clouds in the moonlight, he never returned. The other gods were there, and they did what was expected. Zenig of Afarat sought to reach unknown Kadath in the cold waste, and his skull is now set in a ring on the little finger of one whom I need not name. But you, Randolph Carter, have braved all things of Earth's dreamland, and burned still with the flame of quest. You came not as one curious, but as one seeking his due. Nor have you failed ever in reverence toward the mild gods of earth. Yet have these gods kept you from the marvelous sunset city of your dreams, and wholly through their own small covetousness. For verily they craved the weird loveliness of that which your fancy had fashioned, and vowed that henceforward no other spot should be their abode. They are gone from their castle on unknown Kadath to dwell in your marvelous city. All through its palaces of veined marvel they revel by day, and when the sun sets they go out in the perfumed gardens and watch the golden glory on temples and colonnades, arched bridges and silver-basined fountains, and wide streets with blossom-laden urns and ivory statues in gleaming rows." and when night comes they climb tall terraces in the dew and sit on carved benches of porphyry, scanning the stars, or lean over pale balustrades to gaze at the town's steep northward slopes, where one by one the little windows in old peaked gables shine softly out with the calm yellow light of homely candles. The gods love your marvelous city and walk no more in the ways of the gods, they have forgotten the high places of earth and the mountains that knew their youth. The earth has no longer any gods that are gods, and only the other ones from outer space hold sway on unremembered Kadath. Far away in a valley of your own childhood, Randolph Carter, play the heedless great ones. You have dreamed too well, O oh wise arch-dreamer, for you have drawn dreams' gods away from the world of all men's visions to that which is wholly yours, having builded out of your boyhood's small fancies a city more lovely than all the phantoms that have gone before. It is not well that Earth's gods leave their thrones for the spider to spin on, and their realm for the others to sway in the dark manner of others. Fain would the powers from outside bring chaos and horror to you, Randolph Carter, who are the cause of their upsetting, but that they know it is by you alone that the gods may be sent back to their world. 
in that half-waking dreamland which is yours, no power of uttermost night may pursue, and only you can send the selfish great ones gently out of your marvelous sunset city, back through the northern twilight to their wanted place atop unknown Kadath in the cold waste. So, Randolph Carter, in the name of the other gods I spare you and charge you to serve my will. I charge you to seek that sunset city which is yours and to send thence the drowsy truant gods for whom the dream world waits. Not hard to find is that roseal fever of the gods, that fanfare of supernal trumpets and clash of immortal symbols, that mystery whose place and meaning have haunted you through the halls of waking and the gulfs of dreaming and tormented you with hints of vanished memory and the pain of lost things awesome and momentous. Not hard to find is that symbol and relic of your days of wonder, for truly it is but the stable and eternal gem wherein all that wonder sparkles crystallize to light your evening path. Behold, it is not over unknown seas, but back over well-known years that your quest must go, back to the bright strange things of infancy and the quick, sun-drenched glimpses of magic that old scenes brought to wide young eyes. For know you that your gold and marble city of wonder is only the sum of what you have seen and loved in youth. It is the glory of Boston's hillside roofs and western windows aflame with sunset, of the flower-fragrant common and the great dome on the hill and the tangle of gables and chimneys in the violet valley where the many-bridged Charles flows drowsily. These things you saw, Randolph Carter, when your nurse first wheeled you out in the springtime, and they will be the last things you will ever see with eyes of memory and of love. And there is antique Salem with its brooding years, and spectral marble head scaling its rocky precipices into past centuries, and the glory of Salem's towers and spires seen afar from Marblehead's pastures across the harbor against the setting sun. There is Providence, quaint and lordly on its seven hills over the blue harbor, with terraces of green leading up to steeples and citadels of living antiquity, and Newport, climbing wraith-like from its dreaming breakwater. Arkham is there with its moss-grown gambrel roofs and the rocky rolling meadows behind it, an antediluvian kingsport, hoary with stacked chimneys and deserted keys and overhanging gables, and the marvel of high cliffs and the milky-misted ocean with toiling buoys beyond. Cool vales in Concord, cobbled lanes in Portsmouth, Twilight bends of rustic New Hampshire roads where giant elms half-hide white farmhouse walls and creaking well-sweeps. Gloucesters, salt wharves, and Truro's windy willows. Vistas of distant, steepled towns and hills beyond hills along the north shore. Hushed, stony slopes and low-ivied cottages in the lee of huge boulders in Rhode Island's back country. Scent of the sea and fragrance of the fields, Spell of the dark woods and joy of the orchards and gardens at dawn. These, Randolph Carter, are your city, for they are yourself. New England bore you, and into your soul she poured a liquid loveliness which cannot die. This loveliness, molded, crystallized, and polished by years of memory and dreaming, is your terraced wonder of elusive sunsets, and to find that marble parapet with curious urns and carven rail, and descend at last those endless balustrated steps to the city of broad squares and prismatic fountains, you need only to turn back to the thoughts and visions of your wistful boyhood. Look, through that window shine the stars of eternal night. Even now they are shining above the scenes you have known and cherished, drinking of their charm that they may shine more lovely over the gardens of dream. There is Antares. He is winking at this moment over the roofs of Tremont Street, and you can see him from your window on Beacon Hill. Out beyond those stars yawn the gulfs from whence my mindless masters have sent me. Some day you too may traverse them, but if you are wise, you will beware such folly, 
for of those mortals who have been and returned, only one preserves a mind unshattered by the pounding, clawing horrors of the void. Terrors and blasphemies gnaw at one another for space, and there is more evil in the lesser ones than in the greater, even as you know from the deeds of those who sought to deliver you into my hands, whilst I myself harbored no wish to shatter you, and would indeed have helped you hither long ago had I not been elsewhere busy and certain that you would yourself find the way. Shun, then, the outer hells, and stick to the calm, lovely things of your youth. Seek out your marvelous city, and drive thence the recreant great ones, sending them back gently to those scenes which are of their own youth, and which wait uneasy for their return. Easier even than the way of dim memory is the way I will prepare for you. See, there comes hither a monstrous shantak led by a slave who, for your peace of mind, had best keep invisible. Mount and be ready, there. Yogosh the Black will help you on the scaly horror. Steer for that brightest star just south of the zenith. It is Vega, and in two hours will be just above the terrace of your sunset city. Steer for it only till you hear a far-off singing in the high ether. Higher than that lurks madness, so rein your shantak when the first note lures. Look then back to earth and you will see shining the deathless altar flame of Ered Na from the sacred roof of a temple. That temple is in your desiderate sunset city, so steer for it before you heed the singing and are lost. When you draw nigh the city, steer for the same high parapet whence of old you scanned the outspread glory, prodding the Shantak till he cry aloud. That cry the great ones will hear, and know as they sit on their perfumed terraces, and there will come upon them such a homesickness that all of your city's wonders will not console them for the absence of Kadath's grim castle and the scent of eternal stars that crowns it. Then must you land amongst them with the Shantak and let them see and touch that noisome and hippocephalic bird, meanwhile discoursing to them of unknown Kadath, which you will so lately have left, and telling them how its boundless halls are lonely and unlighted, where of old they used to leap and revel in supernal radiance. And the Shantak will talk to them in the manner of Shantaks, but it will have no powers of persuasion beyond the recalling of elder days. Over and over must you speak to the wandering great ones of their home and youth, till at last they will weep and ask to be shown the returning path they have forgotten." Thereat can you loose the waiting Shantak, sending him skyward with the homing cry of his kind, hearing which the great ones will prance and jump with antique mirth, and forthwith stride after the loathly bird in the fashion of gods, through the deep gulfs of heaven to Kadath's familiar towers and domes. Then will the marvelous sunset city be yours to cherish and inhabit forever, and once more will earth's gods rule the dreams of men from their accustomed seat. Go now. The casement is open and the stars await outside. Already your Shantak wheezes and titters with impatience. Steer for Vega through the night, but turn when the singing sounds. Forget not this warning, lest horrors unthinkable suck you into the gulf of shrieking and ululant madness. Remember the other gods. They are great and mindless and terrible and lurk in the outer voids. They are good gods to shun. Hi, Ashantanya! You are off. Send back Earth's gods to their hunts on unknown Kadath, and pray to all space that you may never meet me in my thousand other forms. Farewell, Randolph Carter, and beware, for I am Nyarlat Hotep, the crawling chaos. And Randolph Carter gasping and dizzy on his hideous shantak, shot screamingly into space toward the cold gloob glare of Boreal Vega. Looking but once behind him at the clustered and chaotic turrets of the onyx nightmare, wherein still glowed the lone, lurid light of that window above the air and the clouds of Earth's dreamland. Great, polypous horrors slid darkly past, and unseen bat wings beat multitudinous around him, but still he clung to the unwholesome mane of that loathly and hippocephalic scaled bird.
The stars danced mockingly, almost shifting now and then to form pale signs of doom that one might wonder one had not seen and feared before, and ever the winds of Aether howled of vague blackness and loneliness beyond the cosmos. Then through the glittering vault ahead there fell a hush of portent, and all the winds and horrors slunk away as night things slink away before the dawn. Trembling in waves that golden wisps of nebula made weirdly visible, there rose a timid hint of far-off melody, droning in faint chords that our own universe of stars knows not. And as that music grew, the Shantak raised its ears and plunged ahead, and Carter likewise bent to catch each lovely strain. It was a song, but not the song of any voice. Night and the spheres sang it, and it was old when space and Nyarlathotep and the other gods were born. Faster flew the Shantak and lower bent the rider, drunk with the marvels of strange gulfs and whirling in the crystal coils of outer magic. Then came too late the warning of the evil one, the sardonic caution of the demon legate who had bidden the seeker beware the madness of that song. Only to taunt had Nyarlathotep marked out the way to safety and the marvelous Sunset City. Only to mock had that black messenger revealed the secret of those truant gods whose steps he could so easily lead back at will. For madness and the void's wild vengeance are Nyarlathotep's only gifts to the presumptuous and frantic though the rider strove to turn his disgusting steed that leery, tittering Shantak coursed on impetuous and relentless, flapping its great slippery wings in malignant joy and heading for those unhallowed pits whither no dreams reach. That last amorphous blight of nethermost confusion where bubbles and blasphemes at infinity's center the mindless demon sultan Azathoth, whose name no lips dare speak aloud. Unswerving and obedient to the foul legate's orders, that hellish bird plunged onward through shoals of shapeless lurkers and caperers in darkness and vacuous herds of drifting entities that pawed and groped and groped and pawed, the nameless larvae of the other gods that are like them, blind and without mind and possessed of singular hungers and thirsts. Onward, unswerving and relentless, and tittering hilariously to watch the chuckling and hysterics into which the siren song of night and the spheres had turned, that eldritch, scaly monster bore its helpless rider, hurtling and shooting, cleaving the utmost rim and spanning the outermost abysses, leaving behind the stars and the realms of matter and darting meteor-like through stark formlessness toward those inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time, wherein black Azathoth gnaws, shapeless and ravenous amidst the muffled, maddening beat of vile drums and the thin, monotonous whine of accursed flutes. Onward, onward through the screaming, cackling, and blackly populous gulfs, and then from some dim, blessed distance, there came an image and a thought to Randolph Carter, the doomed. Too well had Hotep planned his mocking and his tantalizing, for he had brought up that which no gusts of icy terror could quite efface. Home, New England, Beacon Hill, the waking world. For know you that your gold and marble city of wonder is only the sum of what you have seen in loved and youth, the glory of Boston's hillside roofs and western windows aflame with sunset, of the flower-fragrant common and the great dome on the hill, and the tangle of gables and chimneys in the violet valley where the many-bridged Charles flows drowsily. This loveliness, molded, crystallized, and polished by years of memory and dreaming, is your terraced wonder of elusive sunsets. And to find that marble parapet with curious urns and carven rail, and descend at last those endless balustraded steps to the city of broad squares and prismatic fountains, you need only to turn back to the thoughts and visions of your wistful boyhood. Onward, onward, dizzily onward, to ultimate doom through the blackness where sightless feelers paused and slimy snouts jostled and nameless things tittered and tittered and tittered. But the image and the thought had come, and Randolph Carter knew clearly that he was dreaming and only dreaming, and that somewhere in the background the world of waking and the city of his infancy still lay. Words came again. You need only turn back to the thoughts and visions of your wistful boyhood. Turn. Turn. Blackness on every side. But Randolph Carter 
could turn. Thick, though the rushing nightmare that clutched his senses, Randolph Carter could turn and move. He could move, and if he chose, he could leap off the evil Shantak that bore him hurtlingly doomward at the orders of Nyarlat Hotep. He could leap off and dare those depths of night that yawned interminably down, those depths of fear whose terrors yet could not exceed the nameless doom that lurked waiting at Chaos's core. He could turn and move and leap. He could. He would. He would! Off that vast, hippocephalic abomination leapt the doomed and desperate dreamer, and down through endless voids of sentient blackness he fell. Aeons reeled. Universes died and were born again. Stars became nebulae and nebulae became stars, and still Randolph Carter fell through those endless voids of sentient blackness. Then, in the slow, creeping course of eternity, the utmost cycle of the cosmos churned itself into another futile completion, and all things became again as they were, unreckoned kalpas before. Matter and light were born anew as space once had known them, and comets, suns, and worlds sprang flaming into life though nothing survived to tell that they had been and gone, been and gone, always and always, back to no first beginning. And there was a firmament again, and a wind, and a glare of purple light in the eyes of the falling dreamer. There were gods and presences and wills, beauty and evil, and the shrieking of noxious night robbed of its prey. For through the unknown ultimate cycle had lived a thought and a vision of a dreamer's boyhood, and now there were remade a waking world and an old cherished city to body and to justify these things. Out of the void, Syngak, the violet gas, had pointed the way, and archaic Nodens was bellowing his guidance from unhinted deeps. Stars swelled to dawns, and dawns burst into fountains of gold, carmine, and purple, and still the dreamer fell. Cries rent the aether as ribbons of light beat back the fiends from outside, and hoary Nodens raised a howl of triumph when Nyarlat Hotep, close on his quarry, stopped, baffled by a glare that seared his formless hunting horrors to gray dust. Randolph Carter had indeed descended at last the wide marmorial flights to his marvelous city, for he had come again to the fair New England world that had wrought him. So to the organ chords of morning's myriad whistles and dawn's blaze thrown dazzling through purple panes by the great gold dome of the state house on the hill, Randolph Carter leapt shoutingly awake within his Boston room. Birds sang in hidden gardens, and the perfume of trellised vines came wistful from arbors his grandfather had reared. Beauty and light glowed from classic mantle and carven cornice and walls grotesquely figured, while a sleek black cat rose yawning from hearthside sleep that his master's start and shriek had disturbed. And vast infinities away, past the gate of deeper slumber and the enchanted wood and the garden lands and the serenarian sea and the twilight reaches of Inganic, the crawling chaos Nyarlat Hotep strode brooding into the onyx castle atop unknown Kadath in the cold waste and taunted insolently the mild gods of earth, whom he had snatched abruptly from their scented revels in the marvelous Sunset City. And that is the end of the story. Thanks for coming along with me and Randolph on that journey. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to kick into the Patreon. It allows me to pay for things like the hosting fees of the show, the Pride Month readers, and the bribery that gets the guards to look the other way when I want to sing melodramatically while wearing a mask on the roof of the Paris Opera House. Andreas Anderson, brand new patron. Hi! I'm happy to have you. Thank you so much for your support. John McDonough and David Ricker, thank you so much. I really appreciate the support, and so do Etienne, Henri, and Francois. Thank you so much for listening. This is the last time you'll hear from me for a month, so until then, I appreciate every single one of you, and I would never have thought to have as many listeners as I do when I first started out this venture. June 27th is the show's fifth birthday, and I honestly didn't think I would even be doing this five years down the line, but here I am, and there you are, and you are all the absolute best audience. Thank you so much for the support and for listening. Please Go and get vaccinated, get your booster, and continue to wear a mask. And if you hear anyone saying out loud that COVID is over, tell them I said you're wrong, and then point them to the show so they can hear me right here and right now 
telling them they're wrong. Punch a racist in the face. And if you happen to have a Republican representative or senator in Congress and you see them just out and about, yell at them. Tell them how much they suck. Don't ever let them have a moment of peace in public. Use your First Amendment right to petition the government for a redress of grievances directly. You hear me, Loudermilk, you cowardly piece of crap? Redress my grievance. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. The show will be back on Saturday and Sunday, but I will not talk to you again until July. Please take care of yourself and each other, and have a good week.